I'm Professor Shane Greenstein, and you're listening to the Harvard Business School Digital Initiative Seminar, a premier seminar series that hosts thinkers and scholars who are pushing forward research on the digital transformation of the economy by conducting and connecting with cutting-edge leaders, equipping leaders, and building community. The Digital Initiative seeks not just to study, but also to shape digital transformation. To learn more, check out digital.hbs.edu. I am uh, uh, delighted to have uh, Tim O'Reilly um, present and discuss his book uh, at the Digital Seminar. Uh, I've known Tim for a long time. <laughs> uh, Tim uh, is a Harvard grad uh, and was basically at the ground floor of many things that we now take for granted. Uh, setting up uh, as the internet was booming. Uh, Tim was there with the internet user guide. We needed user guides apparently for internet. And so, uh, so Tim provided that. Uh, Tim's the founder of, uh, and publisher of O'Reilly Media. Uh, how many of you uh, have an O'Reilly book in your bookshelf? Right. So like all of us. Uh, uh, and um, Tim has, was also instrumental uh, in um, helping to sort of shape the early work around open source software uh, and uh, trying to get them to be uh, more uh, reasonable, <laughs> I would say, uh, and, um, and uh, has been behind the maker movement and many other things. And so uh, Tim, uh, in many ways, has been a participant, influencer in a lot of things around the web and the internet. Uh, that we take for granted. I'm delighted that Tim uh, agreed to come and talk about the topic of Thanks very much for having me. Uh, so just to add a little bit more color to uh, what uh, you know, Kareem said, uh, probably the uh, biggest connection is a, is a very incidental one. When uh, Kareem was at MIT, he'd been doing a lot of research on open source. He also knew uh, a guy named Saul Griffith who went on to become my son-in-law. And it's because of Kareem that my daughter met uh, Saul. And I could uh, attend the first food camp. And that's so right. I, I invited Kareem to yeah. my first food camp, which is our unconference. Uh, and Kareem couldn't come. And he said, ah, you know, you should invite Eric Von Hippel. Yes. And then Eric couldn't, uh, who's a professor at MIT, and Eric couldn't come. And he said, oh, but I've got this amazing grad student that I ought to send. And, Yes. Uh, one thing like that. Eric funded Saul. Right oh, there you are, Eric. Oh, my goodness. I hope the, I hope the marriage is going well. It's going, it's going very well. So good to see you again. We get long term warranties. Yeah, so basically, you know, I really owe you guys. So, you know, when I was at. How many grandkids now? Two. Two, okay. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, uh, it's just a little, little personal note. But uh, this book uh, is actually the. Not the first, it's the second book that I've written that I did not publish myself. Very early in my career, I did an experiment in publishing a computer book with someone else to see what they knew that I didn't. And, you know, and uh, this book I published with, with uh, Harper Business because I thought, you know, yeah, really, I'm just a self-publisher who's published a couple of thousand books. Uh, but it's still, you know, there's a certain legitimization that comes from somebody else publishing your book. <laughs> so uh, the... Uh, the you know, the key ideas in my book are are, are complex. I, I, I will will admit that it's basically it's a it's a uh, an economics polemic wrapped up in a business book wrapped up in a memoir of my you know life in tech, and so there are a lot of layers to it. But you know the fundamental ideas uh, that I'm trying to explore are how is technology changing the future of work. Uh, how, what does technology teach us about economic prosperity? Uh, how, do we th how do we think about things in a way that's more useful? And uh, you know, it, it's deeply rooted in uh, you know, some ideas that uh, you know, Kareem adverted to. And, and the fundamental idea is that we have maps in our minds that steer us wrong. Now this is a famous map from 1625 
that steered explorers wrong for about 80 years. It was, uh, it was actually a Spanish map that was stolen by the Dutch and then reproduced by the English, and it showed California as an island. So there were actually expeditions that tried to take boats across the Mojave Desert because they were going to have to cross the ocean, or, you know, the, 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 the water in between. And clearly having the map wrong uh, can lead to big mistakes. And so the story that, uh, you know, where Kareem and I first met was, uh, and he adverted to in the introduction, was around free software versus, uh, you know, Microsoft. And I noticed something really odd about that story, that it was all about uh, Linux, that it was all about the Free Software Foundation, and a very narrow subset of free software. And I, I said, well, what about the Internet? You know, because Tim Berners-Lee had put the web into the public domain, you know, Bill Joy had written the TCP IP stack that was, in, you know, uh, under the Berkeley license, which anybody could use, the domain name system, SendMail, and then coming along later, Apache. All these things had an even freer license. And I said, well, how do we reconcile these stories? It's not just about Microsoft. And I came to a, a, a set of conclusions that eventually led me to what was called Web 2.0, this idea that big data uh, was going to become the new source of, of competitive advantage. So I basically built a better map of the future just by looking at the data and saying, wait, there's a, a lot of things that are being left out of the current story. And that's what I'm trying to do again with this book. I mean, I've done it a number of times over the years, just noticing things that I, I thought other people weren't seeing or saying. And the one I want to talk about today is this sort of notion you know, that, that Silicon Valley is very enamored of, but also our economic modeling is very enamored of, which is the idea that what we really want is continued perpetual growth. And that, you know, Ray Kurzweil kind of describes these things as, and Silicon Valley is totally uh, obsessed with the singularity and, and uh, uh, these, these graphs that just sort of just go, you know, up, you know, asymptotically. But in fact, you know, even you look at something like Facebook, there was probably a time when it kind of looked like it went vertical, but you see it's actually a linear progression, but it's still a pretty good linear progression. And everybody says, yeah, yeah, that's what we want. But actually, my experience in tech tells me something different, that actually a fitness landscape is actually a better model for how technology progresses. There are peaks and valleys. And as, as you have in this idea, it's an idea from evolutionary biology, fitness landscape is where a particular species or an organism is adapted to a set of conditions. And as long as the conditions are, are fine, you can stay at that particular peak of fitness adaptation. Uh, when conditions change, you actually have to migrate to a new peak. And that's very hard to do from the top. Usually you do it from the bottom. And you can kind of see how that happened in the history of technology. You know, Microsoft was at this you know, before this even, it was IBM at the peak of the mainframe, and then it was Microsoft at the peak of the personal computer. You know, Google at this peak of big data, and now AI, Apple on smartphones. And the thing that, you know, I uh, have believed from the very beginning of my career is that, you know, what happens down in the valley is sparked by inclusive generosity. There are open systems that allow lots of experimentation and that's where innovation happens, you know. So, you know, after this PC, you know, uh, everybody was trying to get up to the top of that peak, you know, and that was what was wrong partly with that free software story. It was like Linux is going to displace Microsoft on the top of the PC peak. But what was really happening was that the, you know, the mammals down here were actually kind of finding a new fitness peak, you know, up here, you know. And, and so basically it was the, the, the uh, you know, the open technologies and the open protocols of the internet that gave rise to the big data revolution. Because it does seem to me that there's this alternation where value is created by opening things up so there can be lots of experimentation, so there can be lots of sharing, and that they, uh, and then somebody figures out the rules of the new game and they actually get to the, the, the peak and then they kind of play king of the mountain. And uh, that's uh, uh, kind of the story of of certainly my life in tech, I've watched a number of these things. 
By the way, I, I wanted to say, uh, if anybody wants to interrupt me at any point, ask questions, uh, you know, I, I tried to make this a relatively short presentation so that we could have lots of conversation. We can have a conversation at the end or in, in the middle. But here's a really interesting thing. I don't really talk about this in the book, but it's, it's, uh, it, it's a pretty significant, you know, business story. You know, Google did a pretty good job of jumping over to the smartphone fitness peak while maintaining their current <laughs> peak. Certainly a much better job uh, than Microsoft did in, in its first uh, incarnation. So, then, you know, take getting to the internet or getting to, um, uh, getting to smartphones. And I think the key was, again, generosity. Because if you look at the value that they gave away to others in order to be able to bridge to that new peak and to actually create you know, channels for their big data you know, sort of uh, fitness uh, uh, function to continue over on the smartphone was they said, well, we're just gonna give a lot of stuff away. You know, and again, they used open source strategically. And so Android, they gave away to phone manufacturers, uh, Chromebooks, again, to P PC manufacturers. I just know in both cases, they've, they've, they've come to displace Apple as the leading provider. So uh, it's not just that, you know, the innovation comes from the, the, you know, the little critters down at the bottom of the fitness valley and comes up to the top. It's also that if you are at the top, generosity is still the best strategy and finding ways to create value for others. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Yeah, sure, at any, any point. Do you think they would behave that way if they were first? No, of course not. Yeah, I like this. But, you know, here's the point. I do have uh, uh, some faith, and I think you all must too, because you are teachers, that by studying the lessons of the past, you can actually learn something from them. You know, although there is that famous uh, quote uh, attributed to Mark Twain, I think the only thing we learn from history is that people learn nothing from history. Uh, but, uh, uh, or actually the other great quote from, from, from Twain is, uh, history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. Uh, but anyway, so that's just one sort of framing idea. It's like, you just think of this one layer of the onion. Oh. I wonder if you have a view on what makes the landscape, physical landscape is geology. Yeah. Well, or, or the biological landscape. Well, if you think about it, it's, uh, it's a set. It's actually, biology is a pretty good model because if you think of a change in the environment, you know, it could be an external factor like climate change that makes species have to adapt. A wonderful book, if you've never read it, Beak of the Finch, about a drought in the Galapagos. The guys, people down there studying uh, Darwin's finches, and they actually saw evolution in action over where the bird's beaks got bigger over a period of about 10 years, just because, hey, it was a dry period. They need bigger beaks to crack bigger seeds. Uh, you know, so technological change is the equivalent of, say, a change in climate or a competing species, you know. So I think the biology, uh, biological you know, analogy is pretty good. Yeah, it could be technology change, right? Uh, it very rarely comes from the people at the top. Uh, my my sense, just watching, and again, I, I you know, it's a relatively small uh, you know set of cases, so uh, I don't know. And, and Google certainly pioneering AI is a pretty good. Um, uh, example of somebody, you know, not just defending their original turf and but pushing into new areas. I think they've done a pretty good job of that. Amazon has also done a, a very good job of that. Whereas, for example, the the mistake that Microsoft made, uh, you know, and Shane knows way more about this than I do, but uh, uh, <coughs> was that they basically had what they called the strategy tax, where everything, you know, was about Windows and. Uh, and that was pretty clearly a mistake. They were defending their turf rather than saying, you know, what's new. And, and you know, I, I think the thing that's so interesting about, uh, I think Amazon in particular is uh, that, uh, uh, you know, Jeff has always sort of felt like they don't actually have a lot of advantages, so they have to keep inventing things and keep getting a little better in a lot of ways. Uh, I will also say that for the for our entire you know society and for uh, technology in particular, you know competition you know say from China 
is going to be very interesting. I think uh, regulatory regimes are a kind of climate change for 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 uh, technology as well. Uh, you know, as we're going to see uh, exactly what happens. We already see this in Europe. What happens in in uh, you know in in the U.S. with in response to Facebook is going to have a major impact on how what companies do and how they build things. And some of it will be good and some of it will be bad. And then we're going to have in, in different increased speciation, so to speak, uh, based on the different environment in China. You know, this is certainly true around uh, you know things like biotech, but it's also true. You know, in data where, you know, there's a much tighter relationship between companies and the, the state. And they're basically saying, yeah, collect all the data that you want. Give it to us. That's, you know, you can really start to see species divergence between, you know, uh, the U.S. and Europe and China. And it's going to lead to some very, very different kinds of, of, of companies and potentially very different advances or, uh, or, uh, or blockages to advancement. We done with that topic? <laughs> right, any, anyone else want to talk a little bit more about that before I move on to the next? Uh, okay, next layer. There's a big idea that I've been wrestling with. It's really what I got to as a result of open source. And I started thinking about, you know, the, 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 the companies that survived the dot-com bust were all about collective intelligence in some way or other. And very early on, uh, in my, I started doing open source activism really in the late 90s. And, and I, the thing that was interesting to me, I, I, I was originally most deeply associated with the Perl community, the Perl program community. And uh, this wake up moment for me came when I asked one of my authors, this guy Jeff Friedel, who wrote a book called Mastering Regular Expressions, who had a job at Yahoo. And I said, Jeff, what do you do all day at Yahoo with Perl? And he said, I write regular expressions to match up news stories with ticker symbols for you know finance.yahoo.com, and I had this insight that uh, you know I kind of started working like a dog with a bone, that oh, that's why people are using Perl and scripting languages in general is because these things are turning into processes. Software is is no longer a an artifact; it's a business process, and you know not only that the people are still inside the machine. And so I started thinking about that and I can, you know, continued working. And then I realized after the dot-com bust that all of the companies that survived had figured out ways to bring people into the machine in one way or another, right? So, uh, uh, so this is really, to me, one of the fundamental design patterns of the current age. We're developing new ways to integrate people and machines cognitively. And so, you know, I started thinking about that with Google. This is actually a worker inside the Google data center. But think about it. Every, you know, the, and this was when I was sort of working on this idea of Web 2.0. It was like, oh, you know, we tell Google what to feature. Every time we create a page on the, uh, on, on the World Wide Web, how does Google find it? They find it because somebody linked to it. If there were no links to it, it would be isolated. But no, somebody linked to it. Google followed the link. Google then figured out, well, the way that people link to it tells us something about how valuable it is. Who linked to it? And they found ultimately hundreds of signals. But we are continually teaching Google, right? And so that idea became fairly central for me. And I started saying, oh, that's also how Amazon beat Barnes & Noble. Barnes & Noble basically featured the products that people paid them to feature, whereas uh, Amazon said, wow, you know, we're actually taking all this signal from customers who are linking, liking, you know, reviewing, commenting, and they go, this is the best book. So back around 2003, I did a bunch of talks on, you know, this is before I'd coined the term Web 2.0, uh, about Amazon versus Barnes & Noble. And I was like, look, you do a search on JavaScript, and over on barnesandnoble.com, you get, you know, this book that somebody paid them to feature. And Amazon features our book because all of the signals tell them it's the best book. So collective intelligence became this idea. So anyway, I started thinking about that, and it became a, a you know kind of a, a watchword. But here's the thing that's really interesting: this has now come to the real world. You know, the people are inside the machine. You know, so you think about a service like Uber. Okay, there's traffic data here. We're all 
you know, through our sensors that we're carrying around in our pockets, we're telling you know, Google or the Lyft app or the Uber app how many people are in one place, so collective intelligence is being harnessed. If you're an Uber or Lyft driver, you're actually augmented uh, you know, by uh, the app, which tells you where to go, where's the passenger that you're supposed to find, uh, how do you get them to their destination, if, even if you've never been there, even if you're not trained as a taxi driver, even if you came from somewhere else, right? Uh, you know, there's work going on self-driving cars, which are part of the, the system. So it's really this, uh, this network-enabled marketplace. And so one of the threads that I started exploring in this book is, is this idea of network-enabled marketplaces managed by algorithms as a central design pattern of today's business, and also the implications of the fact that our financial markets are also one of these networked, network-based financial, uh, network-based uh, collective intelligence systems. Uh, and what does that actually mean? You know, that our, our markets are now uh, digitalized in this way. So um, let me show you a, 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 a graph I put in the book, uh, which is basically what I would call what I call a business model map of Uber, because I tried to tease it apart into a bunch of factors where I could say these are some of the things that are important in these platforms. And the first thing is that they are platforms. It's a platform. It's not just a company. You know, the people don't work for the company. You know, a huge number of the of the the, the people who do the work for them don't. Uh, you know, are not actually employees. That's, that's a feature. But it's also, I realize, it's true of many other companies. I, I think a lot about this from my own company, O'Reilly Media. You know, the reason why we have this thing called Foo Camp was because we realized, which, where Foo was sort of a joke, you know, uh, you know, you guys probably heard the expression Foo Bar. We, we, want, we, we referred to people who didn't work for us but were our authors or spoke at our conferences as friends of O'Reilly or Foo's, and we decided to throw a party with a Foo Bar. Uh, uh, but anyway, but point was, we're all networks. You know, the, this is the pattern. If you recognize yourself as a network, you, you think differently about uh, your business. And uh, so... I'm, I'm going to just uh, diverge a little bit from this. Well, actually, l let me go a little further into this and then I'm going to come back to O'Reilly as an example. So it's very easy when you think about Uber or Lyft to think about the app. You know, it's this magical user experience. You know, you're suddenly, you know, it's like, come, come to me, o, 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 o car. You know, and, and it, it picks you up, uh, does all this stuff for you, you know, it, calculates your bill automatically. It is a magical user experience, and that's part of it. But you think about taxi companies that say, oh, yeah, if only we had an app like Uber, you know, we would be okay. But the problem is they don't have enough supply in a lot of places, or they have the supply at the wrong time. And so there's this idea that you actually need a, a pool of drivers who show up when you need them. You know, so like where I live in, in Oakland, California, out in the, you know, sort of a suburby kind of area, there are no taxi cabs. You could call one, maybe, you know, if you're, if you're uh, and you can cross your fingers and pray, but you certainly couldn't count on it. And now I can get a car any time of the day or night because of this marketplace, these drivers who show up when you need them. And, of course, they're also working to build a marketplace of passengers who expect that that's true, right? And... They're then managing this two-sided marketplace with an algorithm, right? And uh, they're, also, they're also basically, because of that, they're able to replace the notion of owning a car with the, the notion that I just have access to it. And you can think about how this plays out for companies like Airbnb. Turns out algorithms play a much bigger role in Airbnb uh, in the way they, they're basically augmenting the host. Oh, that's the other thing. I, I, I didn't pull out this one, augmented workers. I, I mentioned already the drivers are cognitively augmented by the app. And uh, it turns out that Airbnb, for example, spends a whole lot of time, you know, basically helping their hosts uh, to, to, to actually advertise themselves. And they think of themselves as, as augmenting their hosts. Uh, you know, Brian uh, Chesky had me come, you know, give a talk about this at Airbnb, and he's like, yeah, this is totally matches how we think about the business. 
Uh, it's also really good description of Upwork. You got, I don't know if you've looked at Upwork, how many of you? Uh, Upwork is one of the most interesting companies, I think, uh, in the future because uh, it's you know this on-demand marketplace for a lot of fairly skilled jobs. It's actually their fastest growing uh, segment is U.S. to U.S. It's not no longer sort of outsourcing to cheap labor overseas. It's maybe some geographic arbitrage within the U.S. But what's most interesting about it is it's it's the fruit fly of the labor market or the laboratory mouse because you know jobs turn over so fast. You know, unlike LinkedIn or or uh, you know uh, Indeed, which will show you you know the bigger labor market with this sort of a period of years where people are turning over in jobs, they have jobs turn over in days or weeks. And so they have this incredibly fast market for skills and skills acquisition. And they do a really interesting story on uh, uh, Upwork. They do about 100,000 hours of assessment of their workers every month, you know, obviously across a lot of workers. And uh, Stefan Casriel, the CEO, tells me that what, they, what they're trying to do is figure out how to sort workers into three buckets. And the three buckets are, this worker has the skills for this set of jobs. Oh wait, they're already in the flow, they have a reputation on the platform, there's plenty of work, we don't need to do anything for them. Oh, they have the skills, uh, they don't have, we have to actually get them exposure. Uh, they don't have the skills, we have to discourage them from applying for jobs that they won't actually get and that will, you know, will make them more discouraged. And we need to tell them what skills they need to get in order to be able to get work. And, and there's also people who even who have the skills who they, they spend a lot of time going, okay, we have, and it's a little bit like, you know, Uber building a tool that says, go to the surge. You know, they have tools to go, hey, you know, guess what? You're making, you know, 25 bucks an hour as a Java developer. You know, the difference between being a Java developer and an Android developer is not that great. Go take, you know, improve your skills, become an Android developer, you'll make 40 bucks an hour. Oh, become a data scientist, you'll make $100 an hour. You know, so they're basically constantly getting feedback to their, you know, their fast-moving, dynamic workforce, uh, you know, that they're trying to manage and match by algorithm to actually improve their earning potential. So back to how this applies to any company. I'll just use O'Reilly as an example. Because we started thinking of ourselves as a two-sided marketplace, you know, we, uh, so just quick background on our business. We started out uh, as a book publishing company, added conferences, we added an online uh, ebook platform called Safari Books Online, but we eventually morphed that to video and online learning. Well, the hottest product on the platform today is live online training. And live online training is literally somebody gets there, does a you know two, four, six hour course. Uh, it's scheduled ahead of time. Uh, people are you know attending it, asking questions virtually, and so on. And it's it, you know, we have a large uh, you know B two B. The business is uh, heading for hundred million dollar revenue. It's basically it's uh, uh, about two thirds B two B, twenty. 5% B2C and 10% and library. And um, the, uh, you know, there's some real advantages to this live online training, not just for the users, uh, um, but also it, it creates you know, stickiness in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the subscription product uh, for, for businesses because employees have signed up for future events and so on. But here's the thing. How did we come up with this product? In the normal Silicon Valley narrative, you'd be focused relentlessly on your customers. We actually came up with this idea by focusing on our suppliers. Because Safari is a network of, of publishers and trainers and authors. And as publishing became less lucrative, we were looking for a new way to make money for our suppliers because we didn't want them to go away. Because we, we said, oh, if they go away, we have to actually make all the content. And so we, we thought of ourselves as a marketplace. And I was really proud of this kind of strategic thinking when my COO, who really runs the company uh, every, uh, you know, on the everyday basis, uh, uh, Laura Baldwin, the president, uh, uh, she basically says to our exec meeting, we have a real problem. You know, we just introduced live online training 
we and we went out and we evangelized our various publishing partners. You should do this too. We think it's going to be a hot product. But she said we have a real problem. We introduced a hundred courses and Pearson introduced ten. They were our, our biggest partner, and we took half of their our, their revenue this month. And, you know, this is a crisis. We have to go evangelize them to, to get more of this. Because instead of saying, you know, if you think Microsoft, you know, not understanding this idea about a platform uh, and not understanding this idea about it has to work for everybody, we went back and we, we said, you guys have to do more. We don't want to take all the revenue. You know, because we're both a marketplace participant and the marketplace owner. And uh, so... Uh, you know, in, in this same regard, this idea of balancing the sides of the platform is really critical. And so let me bring it back to Uber. Uh, I've been lobbying both Uber and Lyft for a long time saying, you guys have this Silicon Valley disease, which is you think about yourselves and your valuation and you think about your users, but you don't think about anybody else. You know, Amazon routinely competes with their suppliers. Google has gone from uh, getting 50% of their ad revenue from advertising on third-party sites down to 18%, uh, you know, because they're getting more and more on their own sites. They're eating their ecosystem, you know, even though they are, in fact, bridging out in other ways. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you think this way, I, I, I said, you know, Travis was hopeless, but Dara really gets it, you know, at Uber. Like, we actually have to do better by our drivers. And you, know, you guys all know, if you have studied economics, you know, the concept of the efficiency wage. You know, so basically uh, Uber and Lyft treated drivers as a disposable, uh, you know, commodity. Drivers didn't stick around. They ended up getting in this vicious circle of, of uh, having to pay big, big bonuses and trying to, you know, incent, you know, people to sign up. And when, the, you know, they, they worked off the bonus, they would go back, to, they would defect back and forth. And the fact is, it's pretty clear that they could do a better job of matching supply and demand you know, if they took more thought to both sides of their marketplace. Tim, Tim? Yeah. So. Just to you, back to your business uh, at O'Reilly and you as a platform, mm -hmm. do you think, um, do you yeah. think, uh, is Pearson also trying to be a platform? I don't know that they think that way. I mean, okay. first of all, I mean, they were a partner in Safari for many years. We bought them out in uh, 2014. Okay. Um, but if you think about it, uh, how many platforms do you think can be sustained in the publishing world as you were sort of imagining? Like, well, I mean, every publisher is a platform. They are a platform for their authors. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, quite seriously. I mean, it's really, I think virtually any business can think of itself as uh, this kind of nexus between suppliers and consumers. And, uh, you know, the, the, the figuring out a better allocation actually creates uh, better, you know, um, a better system. And, and uh, you know, I'm not sure, you know, I can apply it to every business, but I'll give you a couple of examples uh, a bit later. Actually, I could just do it now. Like I was, no, actually, I'll, I'll save it for later because I've got a slide that's relevant, okay? Okay. Going back to your point about being managed by algorithms, so I don't know if you know the book um, Weapons of Math Destruction. I do. Yeah, so her, one of her main points is that algorithms need to be transparent so we can understand yeah. how the input becomes the output. That works well for open source, but yeah. for companies like Uber who are very proprietary, we can't see any transparency in it. Yeah. Um, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, first off, I mean, I, I think that I don't know what what's in this either. Uh, <laughs> and I still drink it. Um, uh, I know what's in this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, do you? There was recently a study uh, where they discovered there was little bits of plastic in bottled water. Uh, There's sand in the student dorm drinking water right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, I, so yes, we do actually have to come to grips with, you know, what's below the surface of these algorithms. I think Maybe more importantly, and, and this is really the, where I'm going to go next in this talk, is we have to ask ourselves, what are they trying to optimize for? Because there's a really interesting um, uh, talk I heard recently by a woman named Natasha Iskander. It's at NYU. Uh, some of you may I see Kareem nodding. And she just went on this rant about why she hates design thinking. 
And I was like, okay, you know, because we use design thinking a lot at Code for America, my, my, uh, you know, my wife's nonprofit, which is working to improve government. And I, I'm a big fan of it. But what she said makes real sense. She said, oh, the, what's wrong with design thinking is that it assumes that we know the, the thing that we want, and it's just how we're going to get there uh, more effectively. And she said, you know, she does, she's a, uh, somebody who works a lot with uh, labor issues in the developing world. She did a lot of work in, in Morocco and in, uh, I think it's uh, Bolivia, uh, on, you know, uh, labor conditions and so on. She says, you know, you have to have a real conversation with people. You might not have the right goal. You know, uh, what would really make their lives better? You know, it's like, sure, if their lives, if it's like we're going to try to make their lives better it, within the confines of we're, we're still an extractive, you know, uh, uh, you know, sweatshop, uh, then you've really limited the scope of the conversation. And she kind of went on this whole rant about this place in, in uh, I mean, again, I'm thinking it's Bolivia, uh, where, you know, the, the, uh, you know, you can improve working conditions and they were doing this design thinking on how they would do that. But the fundamental problem is this is a toxic process. They poisoned the land around there with heavy metals. And, you know, there's so much stuff that was so out of the scope of the discussion of you know what were they going to do with the design thinking of what do the people really need uh, that it it, uh, it, it yeah anyway you get the point so thinking I I think we do need to uh, understand more about what's going on under the covers but I think increasingly as we move into uh, you know deep learning we don't actually know always and what we can do is we can build certain kinds of tests. Yeah, I was just talking with, um, um, uh, sorry, I'm getting to that age in my life where my brain doesn't always work. Um, Broad Institute. Um, Eric Lander. Uh, Eric Lander uh, was telling, by the way, that guy is off the hook. You, know, you think of him as a biologist and I go, so wait a minute, how did you, would you come to write a, uh, an amicus brief on gerrymandering? <laughs> um, Anyway, he was talking about you know uh, his his gerrymandering amicus brief uh, the other day, and and he was just you know it's like you know we're looking for you know we can you know we don't actually have to necessarily know the details of the algorithm because we can we can look at all the possible ways that you um, you you could allocate districts in conjunction in, in in accordance with the laws of the state, and then look at the one that they've got and say is it an outlier on the distribution. You know, so you can actually, there's a lot of ways you can actually test the outcomes. And there's some interesting things that, you know, we can do to increase trust even in black boxes. In fact, this guy, John Madison, uh, said this to me years ago. He's the chief medical information officer of Kaiser Healthcare of Southern California. He, he said, the, the great question of the 21st century is going to be, whose black box can we trust? Uh, because, and, you know, and that is a question, like, how do we get to trust things that we don't entirely understand how they work. Mm -hmm. But let me kind of um, move on to another uh, sort of subtopic here. And this is this great quote from Hal Varian, and I like pairing it with this image because uh, uh, Hal says, my grandfather wouldn't recognize what I do as work. Of course, he's the chief economist at Google. Wait, how did that happen? Why did it do that to me suddenly? Um, and. Uh, I, what I like is, is this is a Victorian sweatshop. This is a bunch of programmers at Pivotal. Uh, you know, so you, you kind of go, really? But here's the thing. If, if you look at that image, it's easy to imagine that these people are making, you know, clothing. These people are making software. They're both, they're all workers. And one of the points I make in the book is that's actually not the right way to think about it. Again, ba back to bad maps. Uh, these people are workers, these people are managers. The workers at Google, at Amazon, at Facebook are all software programs. These are their managers. Right? And every day they're taking feedback about how their workers are doing and they're, they're uh, you know, giving them instructions on how they can be better at what they do. That's what people are doing you know, so, you know, that's what people are doing. So what does it mean, actually, to be the manager of an algorithmic system? And that's kind of a thread throughout the center of the book, uh, which is, you know, I, I kind of spend time on 
how does Google search quality work as a way of kind of teaching something about what does it mean to manage algorithms. And, uh, and then I kind of go into how did it go awry at Facebook, although there's been a lot more on that since I wrote the book. <laughs> um, and then, you know, potentially how, how is it going awry in our financial system. But here's this idea of, of the objective function is a key thing that you're managing for. Google basically says, we want people to come to Google search. So there's obviously a lot more to Google than search now, but just for search. We want people to come to a search page and we want them to go away happy. And so one of the, the measures that they have, you know, one of these basic feedback loops they, is, is something they call the long click, right? which is somebody came and they went away. Short click, they came, they clicked on say the first search result, they went away, they came right back and clicked on the second result. What does that tell you? It tells you the first result was not correct. So that's this you know, rapid feedback loop. There's a lot of other things like that, but where did people actually end up? They ended up with a couple of hundred factors. Uh, you know, the, the chief, the, the, the first two are actually where they started, you know, what is anchor text, uh, uh, you know, of, of the link and uh, page rank, which were their initial sort of innovations. The, and then the third one, though, now is the Google Brain, which is the deep learning uh, model that, you know, just kind of says, no, this page is, is more important than that one. Uh, but they have a couple hundred factors, but they all add up together to this uh, objective function of relevance. And the thing that's really interesting is you can kind of see that, that Google has managed that pretty well. I mean, people, you know, spa spammed it, spoofed it. There was a big flat back in 2011. I didn't put this story in the book, but Matt Cutts reminded me, who used to be the kind of the human face of, uh, of, of Google web spam team, and now uh, actually is the director of the United States Digital Service uh, at the White House. But, uh, you know, he reminded me that I had written them a letter in 2011 saying you're fighting a war with the spammers and you're losing. And he said that letter was one of the things that made us wake up and go, oh shit, and led to what they called the panda search algorithm, which basically wiped out a bunch of content forums and their bad, uh, you know, their, their bad business model. And that's kind of what Facebook is going through today, you know, because you have this idea and it might or might not be right. You know, I kind of already talked a little about, bit about Uber and Lyft. You know, they're trying to optimize for passenger pickup time, low prices for passengers. Uh, they've forgotten about the driver's side. But let's just kind of go into Facebook because this is Facebook right now. They figured out how to get these algorithms to help them do this incredibly hard thing. There's seven billion pieces of content posted a day to Facebook. And they want to show you the stuff that's most relevant. What, what, what's most relevant in the Facebook? Well, they said engagement. That's what we're going to optimize for. We're going to show you more of what you like. We're going to show you more of what you comment on. We're going to show you more of what you share. And they had a theory that it was going to make people more social. It was going to connect us all. And it seemed to be working. And then bit by bit, you know, uh, it didn't. And now they look like this. Uh, you know, and so they're trying to figure out, you know, how did their objective function go wrong? How are they going to bring it back, you know, on stream? And they're doing some really good thinking. You know, they've got a big spell book, and they're, you know, they're actually, uh, I've heard some things that they've told me that, that seem really plausible that are going to tackle the problem and so on. But they, they did, they did uh, get a little bit overtaken by the, uh, the, uh, the brooms with buckets. <laughs> so this idea of the runaway objective function is also at the heart of you know, the narrative about the fear of AI. You know, this is uh, you know Nick Bostrom is the one who originally came up with this uh, idea in his uh, in his book maybe ten or fifteen years ago. But Elon Musk has a fabulous uh, example of it in a Vanity Fair interview where instead of a, a paperclip maximizer, he talks about a, a self-improving strawberry picking machine. You know, and it gets smarter and smarter, and, and it's just been told, you want to pick as many strawberries as, as possible. And eventually it realizes that humans are in the way of strawberry fields forever. Right? You know, and, and that's kind of the, 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 the notion. But, you know, I think we're already facing that. We're facing it with Facebook, with this runaway objective function. And more than that, I think we're facing it very deeply in our businesses and in our business culture. Because 
ask myself, what is the runaway objective function of our business society? And uh, it seems to me that it was articulated by Milton Friedman in 1970 when he said the only, uh, you know, the, the, the social responsibility of a business is to increase its profits. And again, it was just like Mark had this theory that, uh, you know, making, you know, showing people more of what they liked would make them more social and bring them together, and instead it drove them apart. We had this theory that this would make us all richer, but hey, there was the equivalent of various uh, bad actors who were trying to game the system and who have uh, uh, led to some very different outcomes. And you know, we didn't mean to create an opiate crisis, but guess what? The people who were there saying, well, hey, if profit maximization is it, uh, you know, let's see if we can persuade the uh, FDA to say that these drugs are less addictive than they are. Let's, yeah, go on. Okay. I and so there's various kinds of local optimizations that all these people are making around what I think is the wrong objective function because in fact they should be doing uh, what you know Amazon did when they basically said we're going to show the products that people want not the ones that people are going to pay us to show that what Google is doing when they're saying we're going to take all these different factors into account to come up with what we think is going to make people go away. You know, so uh, in, in fact, in a lot of businesses, people are going, actually, I'm taking a bunch of things into account. I need happy employees. I need happy suppliers. And I heard this great, uh, very surprising podcast with Charles Koch talking with Mark Andreessen on the Andreessen Horowitz podcast, where Charles Koch, who I, I would not have thought would be somebody I would be going, wow, I really agree with this guy. He said, yeah, what we want, we try to do at, at, at Coke Industries is we want to be the preferred counterparty for each of our key constituencies. We want to be the preferred counterparty for our customers, for our employees, for our suppliers, uh, for everybody we deal with. And I thought that's a, you know, that's a really interesting, you know, we're, we're understanding that we're, we're, we're this network uh, with lots of dependencies and we're trying to build a complex optimization where we're actually trying to figure out what's best for each of those people so that they will say, yeah, I want to work with you. And that's very much, that's a very different model than simply optimize around profit. And yet we have basically enshrined into corporate governance that you should optimize around profit, not just around profit, but it's become around profit that will be returned to one class of stakeholder, i.e. shareholders. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is a better time to. Yeah. Uh, so that when this used to come, when this used to come up in the past, sometimes at platform firms, the the way it would be framed, and I'd be very interested to get your response. Was yeah. it would be framed as your algorithm lacks a human touch, mm -hmm. and then the sort of superficial response would be, let's hire a community manager. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which, which you, I'm sure you've yeah. observed. Yeah. 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 And. And, and then the community manager at some level is is painting lipstick on the pig. Uh, right. Right? That's yeah. the... It, yeah. It, it, and B Corps are lipstick on the pig, uh, in my opinion. Uh, you know, triple bottom line, lipstick on the pig. You know, it, you know it's got to be real. So is there a version of that that works? That's the support of where I'm going. Uh, the, I come up, the high, the, not just hiring the community manager, but the, yeah. the, the more... You know, I, I think there are, I think there are companies that, you know, do actually think deeply about how do I balance the needs of multiple constituencies. And I think, you know, I, I'm, what I'm trying to do with the book is actually to persuade people to think about this as a strategic competency. You know, using an example where I've been pretty relentlessly lobbying Uber to say, how do you get better at supporting the drivers? I've certainly used it, as I said, in my own company. Uh, I, I'm hearing about companies that are going, oh yeah, of course we have to do that. And uh, certainly I see, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, for all the things that are, uh, you know, in some ways, you know, you look at Bezos and you say, oh God, this guy's this ruthless, uh, uh, you know, profit maximizer. And he isn't actually at all. You go, he's told Wall Street, take a hike. I'm not optimizing for profit. You know, trust me. Now, of course, he said, I'm going to grow forever and I'll be, you know, you'll get the profit sometime. Um, but, 
you know, it's a very different uh, narrative. I mean, certainly when you look at Amazon inside, they're making decisions consistent with we're actually going to keep reinvesting, we're going to keep doing more. I actually have a slide about Amazon later in this if we get there. Anyway, the, the point of this uh, yeah, part of the presentation is uh, summed up in this wonderful quote from my uh, alas now deceased friend Andrew Singer who said uh, the skill of debugging is figuring out what you really told your program to do instead of what you thought you told it to do. Uh, and that is, I think, you know, kind of what we have to do. It's what Facebook is trying to do right now. Uh, uh, you know, it's what I think we need to ask all of our companies to do. Are you actually achieving the objectives that you that you think uh, you are objecting, you, you, that you want? Um, by the way, um, very sad. I I I, I, I remembered this uh, story from Andrew. This is from the early it was uh, you know early nineties. Uh, when I wrote the manual for Think C, which was the uh, first uh, C compiler for the Macintosh, and uh, Andrew was my client, and, and uh, it was a conversation we had, and I didn't think to put it in the book. Uh, the other thing I, I remembered after I wrote the book was this great conversation with Walt Mossberg, uh, the, uh, the tech journalist who, who recounted to me a, a conversation he'd had with Steve Ballmer, who at the time was the CEO of Microsoft, and he said, Steve, if you guys would be 5% less greedy, that everybody would love you 100% more. And, you know, that, I think, is, is kind of, both of those stories are really kind of part of what, I, you know, I'm kind of trying to weave this story back to this beginning of, you know, generosity is a good business strategy. I'm getting the balance right. Anyway, uh, uh, that kind of led me to, a, uh, this is also not in the book, but uh, a conversation I had a couple of weeks ago with Martin Reeves uh, at BCG's Henderson Institute. And he told me a, about a study they had done where they looked at a bunch of uh, you know corporate documents and they categorized them according to Aristotle's two views of economics, and one was Oikonomica and the other is uh, Krematistica, which is uh, either basically the management of the household or the pursuit of wealth. Now Aristotle thought the pursuit of wealth was not the right objective, and it really is a, a good way to think about it, particularly you know. Like as a business, you really are trying to satisfy for a bunch of constituencies. You really are trying to figure out this match between a bunch of different sides in a marketplace, and uh, and so this idea that it's actually about grow, 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 create, you know, uh, you know, create, uh, you know, wealth for shareholders is, is really the wrong model. And and anyway, the point of of the BCG study was that companies that take more factors into account do better. Yeah, surprise. You know, that's again, it's sort of like this parallel lesson from that I saw in tech and that other people are kind of seeing in business and the economy. And so this is also something that's not in the book, but that I encountered more recently is a wonderful book that came out last year called Donut Economics uh, by, by a, a, a British developmental economist uh, from Oxford named Kate Raworth. And uh, she basically uh, has this wonderful idea that rather than the graph that goes up and to the right, the right model for economics is what she calls the donut. The book, her book, Donut Economics, and the donut, you know, is this you know interesting space because it has a hollow space inside and a hollow space outside. And she says, okay, we can think about uh, all these factors and. Uh, and, and realize that there's a shortfall inside, which is humans don't have enough of these things. There are people who don't have enough food, who don't have enough shelter, who don't have various kinds of rights, you know, social, they don't have energy. And then, of course, on the outside is, is economic overshoot. And so her point was that the job of economics is not to have things grow always upward and to the right. It's actually to keep our collective household within the donut of, you know, between undershoot and overshoot. And I think that's actually also a really good business model. You know, when I think about how do I manage my business, I'm trying to keep it in homeostasis with its environment. Yes, I want it to grow, but I don't want it to grow at all costs. I want it to grow in a balanced way. I want it to grow with uh, support for my customers, with support for my suppliers. You know, so I'm thinking a lot about that. So what gives me a really interesting bit of hope, and this is, is, is sort of implied in the book, and I'm continuing to think about it, this is kind of the frontier that I'm heading towards, is this notion that the great 
platforms are developing algorithmic marketplaces that are complex, that are allocating. Go on. Jim, why do you want it to grow? Your business. Um, well, frankly, uh, I, I don't really care that much about it. Right? I have I have some some uh, reasons why I want it to grow. Uh, that, that really have to do with, I, I think we're doing important work and I want to do more of it. Uh, I think that I, um, you know, I, ha I have some considerations around <coughs> what happens when, when I die. So are we big enough to survive? Uh, you know, so they're, they're kind of, you know, they're, they're sort of, they're not, they're not, it's not like this forever strategic imperative, they're tactical reasons. But that's, I think, worth thinking about because, yeah. uh, you know, something else will come in if yours stops. Yeah, that's fair. Why do you want it to continue on? Uh, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I have a lot of sympathy for that point of view. And in fact, you know, one of the tech companies that many people may know, uh, Basecamp, you guys know about Basecamp? They've decided we do not want to grow. We're never going to have more than 50 employees and we're going to turn away business if that's what it takes, you know, and that's a perfectly reasonable, uh, you know, approach. I, right, I think, because uh, if you think about it, you know, the narrower your business, in a sense, the better you can serve mm -hmm. that subset. As, as you get larger, you're starting to make compromises. Yeah, that, no, that's absolutely fair. Uh, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, there, there's a very good argument Here's the thing, I guess I would say, there's a bunch of implications for me. I mean, we have a world with, you know, 7 billion people. So the scale of our enterprises is getting larger. And, uh, you know, somebody's going to be, uh, you know, at global scale. And the question I have, and I think this is a real question for, you know, business theorists, for policymakers, and the like, is... Okay, if you get to global scale and you're extractive, we're hosed. You know, so the, the bigger you get, the more important that it is that you be actually supporting this rich ecosystem of smaller players. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I would just raise, and I'll shut up, <laughs> but I would just raise the point that, that uh, really growing some things to global scale, uh, Marco thinks about this a lot, has has destructive implications. Yes, absolutely. And so, uh, you know, I'm sort of thinking about the grassroots yeah. innovation end of things yeah. and, and sort of keeping that rich and complex and diverse. Yeah, world. absolutely. But, you know, the thing that I guess I really think about is uh, in a well-functioning ecosystem, uh, the big guys actually will support more small guys. You know, and, and, and there are opportunities for a big platform to create a rich ecosystem. Yeah, until they go wrong. Until they go wrong, exactly. Yeah, so, so there's a rich diversity in there. Would right. Would really healthier politically and all that. Yeah, yeah. I, I would agree with that. And, I, I, you know, I think there's a lot of thinking to be done about antitrust law in the age of platforms. Uh, and, and for me, you know, one of the key measures that, you know, we, we, we've kind of have this focus on antitrust is, is there consumer benefit? And I think we really need to start saying, is there ecosystem benefit? You know, i.e., is the ecosystem becoming impoverished? You know, d did the platform owner, you know, eat more and more of the ecosystem? And then, because one day you go, you know, you're to wake up and go, it's not working anymore. Right here. around what's currently happening around Facebook. So a lot of politicians raising this argument um, that the platform should be more strictly regulated, etc. And my guess now, listening to your lectures, they actually stick to the standard objective function in a way that they assume Facebook want to make more profit. <coughs> and like with taking this angle, would you say like all these policy attempts currently under discussion are they really heading into the right direction, or how can you control yeah. and how can you shape yeah. these networks from a policy perspective? Yeah, you know, uh, I, well, the first thing I would say is uh, my own attempts. I, I gave a talk like this at Google uh, last year, and you know, I was basically saying, you know, wake up, 
you will be regulated unless you regulate yourselves. You've got to actually make sure that you are thinking about uh, social benefit. And, you know, Google really was very strong on that for a long time, and then bit by bit they kind of have drifted, you know, uh, into a self-interested stance. And, you know, I think there is a, that's why I said my, you know, my book is in some ways a polemic. I'm trying to say, hey, to the tech industry, wake up. You are going to actually, you are summoning the pitchforks. Yeah, <laughs> and stop doing that, and uh, you will be better off. But from the point of view of regulators, the real issue is that regulators often uh, don't really understand what they're regulating, and and I would much rather see, uh, um, you know, well, for, I mean, it's a multivariate problem. I mean, I'm doing a lot of work, you know, in other parts of my life on how do we get government smarter about technology so that there are people there who can uh, do intelligent things. And you look at, for example, the Department of Transportation's work on regulating self-driving cars, you know, people like Ed Felton who were in, deeply involved in that, really helping to shape that. You know, and I think it's a pretty good regulatory regime. It sort of defined the space in which, you know, uh, 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 you know companies should be thinking about uh, these issues. You know, so it, it's not really even, it's sort of proto-regulation. They've kind of created this space where, okay, these are the things we want you to think about and measure and test and prove to us. And um, so I think government being smarter about technology uh, could become an effective regulator. Uh, but I think very often we have, I have a worry that it will uh, be people who don't understand how, you know, uh, these platforms work, and then they just want to say, well, just do it the old way, or do it in some way that we're comfortable with, and then we're screwed.